Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition we mine some Bitcoin, build a $100 3D printer, and search for extraterrestrial life. But first up, here's the news. Life discovered in outer space. Well, okay, life discovered in the upper stratosphere, where it has no right to be. A team from the University of Sheffield, led by Professor Milton Wainwright, sent a balloon 25 kilometres straight up to the edge of the atmosphere, and discovered a microorganism that shouldn't have been there. They found part of a diatom, which is a single-celled algae that cannot live away from water, much left in what's left of the air at 25 kilometres. The balloon is unlikely to have had any stowaway algae because it wasn't immersed in water, although it was launched near Ellesmere Port. The only known way for the diatom to be transported into the stratosphere is by a large, violent volcanic eruption. And there weren't any eruptions recent enough to move diatoms into the path of the balloon. It's been three years since the last one, so it has to be ruled out. Particles the size of the diatom fragment found can only stay in the air about six hours before they fall out of the stratosphere. And I have to say again, there's no other known way of lofting something this size into the stratosphere, and if there had been a violent giant volcanic eruption this year, then everyone would know about it. Aircraft don't fly as high as 25 kilometers, so the algae couldn't have hitched a ride on them, and if a volcano had erupted, no aircraft would be flying. That leaves few alternatives. Either there's an as-yet undiscovered way of transporting single-celled algae from the sea to the stratosphere, or the diatom arrived in the stratosphere from the other direction, from space. The balloon carried scanning electron microscope studs, which were only exposed to the atmosphere when the balloon had gone up well over 25 kilometers. Before launch, the automatic drawer containing the sampling studs was cleaned, air blasted and swabbed with alcohol to make sure it wasn't contaminated with any life from the surface. The drawer was covered to protect the sampling studs from any organic matter that could land on it on its way up to the stratosphere. They first made a control flight without opening the drawer at 25 kilometers height, and the balloon didn't record any samples, which argues strongly against contamination from the flight or on the way back to the scanning electron microscope back at the laboratory. The team say in their paper, Diatoms do not occur on pristine balloons, in laboratory air, nor are they associated with laboratory workers. Their paper is titled, Isolation of a Diatom Frustule Fragment from the Lower Stratosphere, 22 to 27 kilometers, Evidence for a Cosmic Origin, and was published in the Journal of Cosmology. The panspermia hypothesis that life could evolve in space was first proposed by Arrhenius, a Swedish chemist in 1903. 
He suggested that pressure from starlight could push tiny microorganisms from star to star. So Fred Hoyle and Chandra Wickrama Singh correctly predicted in 1974 that dust clouds in space were made largely from carbon, and that organic molecules could form spontaneously. They popularised panspermia, and suggested that life could have evolved in comets and gas clouds in space. And perhaps, and that microorganisms from space could be raining down on Earth, causing diseases and adding genetic novelty. Hoyle went further and suggested that microorganisms evolved in space before any life evolved on Earth, so that all life on Earth is descended from space-travelling microorganisms that seed the universe. In 2009, Stephen Hawking at an Origins of Life conference said that when humans explore space, we may find that life has spread from planet to planet or from stellar system to stellar system carried on meteors. Certainly meteors from Mars have landed on Earth, so why not from somewhere with life? We now know that extremophile bacteria and fungi can survive being frozen and irradiated in the stratosphere only to be revived when they return to Earth. In 1992, a series of orbital spacecraft discovered that extremophiles can survive inside rock powder in space, where they're protected from ultraviolet light. The powder would let them travel for six years before they died of radiation poisoning, so they need asteroids or meteors, a metre or larger, to keep them alive if they travel between the stars. In 2012, astronomers at Copenhagen University found a type of sugar in a distant star system. In 2013, NASA found some of the complex organic building blocks for DNA and amino acids in interstellar gas clouds. Way back in 2001, a similar experiment with a balloon in India detected bacteria and fungi in the stratosphere for the first time. Professor Wainwright thinks it's plausible that the diatom he found could have come from a comet instead of an unknown method of travel from our ocean to the stratosphere. The Sheffield team hoped to extend and confirm their findings with another balloon ascent in October, to coincide with the Halley's Comet-associated meteorite shower, when there'll be large amounts of cosmic dust in the stratosphere. Their plan is to use isotope fractionation to see if the ratio of particular isotopes in the organisms matches what you'd expect from Earth, or whether they've travelled from outer space. For now, the origin of this diatom is a mystery. Last week, Shard, Core and D introduced you to Bitcoin, the online currency that isn't backed by any bank or government. Bitcoin relies on people running their Bitcoin wallet software, which broadcasts any transactions over the internet to everyone else's wallet software. It's completely decentralized, and it's enjoying a boom. People are buying Bitcoin in exchange for the government-backed money that everyone else uses, and more and more merchants are accepting Bitcoin as payment. A pub in Woolloomooloo will sell you beer for fractions of a Bitcoin. Bitcoins are currently worth 140 Australian dollars. The other side of the Bitcoin boom is Bitcoin mining. You can create new Bitcoins, new money, by running software that cracks the SHA 256 code that all our online banking and shopping relies on. The faster you can make your computer crack the code, the faster you can make money before the Bitcoin exchange rate changes. By cracking the code, 
you're verifying the Bitcoin transactions. At Dorkbot Sydney, I spoke to James Nichols, a mathematics graduate who's teamed up with a hardware friend and a marketing friend to sell hardware-accelerated Bitcoin mining machines. The me and some friends are doing this uh, project on hardware-accelerated uh, Bitcoin mining, where we're using uh, sort of advanced specific chips and circuits that, that can uh, optimally do uh, Bitcoin hashing minimization. And the Bitcoin hashing minimization, that's the way for the Bitcoin network to validate all the transactions? Yeah, yeah. So everyone who participates in the mining of Bitcoin is actually participating in bolstering the network of Bitcoin. Um, so in, in doing this uh, minimizing of the hashing routine, you're kind of uh, um, uh, verifying the ledger of accounts as it stands and, and you're helping bolster the security of the network and, and preventing double spending and stuff like that. And in order to do this mathematical operation, minimizing the hashing, you've got to break a cryptographic code? Yeah, you've got to, you've got to, find, a, um, you've got to find a combination that minimizes um, uh, the, uh, what's known as the SHA-256 algorithm, which is you know, a standard hashing algorithm that's used worldwide in internet banking and all sorts of stuff. And uh, you just got to, you know, find a, a magic number that minimizes that, really. Yeah. And the way you're doing it is you've got a special purpose chip. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, there's no way of mathematically solving this problem. Um, you know, there's no shortcut. You've just got to try all these combinations and see if they work. There's, you know, so it's, it's what's known as a brute force problem. You've got to apply just brute computer force as much as you can. But one, the... the big um, improvement you can do is of course have um, optimized circuitry that only does that problem and nothing else it's not generalized for you know a, a standard computer to you know run your operating system or whatever it's just a chip that just does that problem and does it really fast and really well and so you're part of a team that are building a circuit board to run that chip yeah yes yes that's correct it's called the drill bit system yeah and so the Drillbit system, how much will it go for when you're selling it? Uh, about $100 for our small thumb drive uh, thing, which at present will generate you about 0.1 of a Bitcoin-ish a day, you know, which is about $10 a day or something like that. Um, you know, this will adjust quite a lot over time, um, but we're hoping to have this platform ready you know, in the next couple of weeks and then shipping in October. So, so you're mining, you're basically creating money bitcoins by doing intensive computation and you're selling the ability yes yeah that's correct yeah so why is it better to sell the chips than to just make the money uh well i guess in in terms of owning the chips yourself if we decided to own all those chips we'd be taking on a lot of risk which is of course the risk that um the difficulty becomes quite hard because everyone else in, around the world starts investing this as well. It's hard to know what the status of the worldwide investment into sort of Bitcoin power is. And we don't want to take that risk on. Um, but heaps of people are quite interested in just, you know, buy, buying these small um, systems because, you know, even if it doesn't pay off, you know, your $100 or whatever isn't the, the, the worst thing in the world to lose. And there's lots of hobbyists who just want to have a bit of, you know, hashing power that they can... Uh, mine some Bitcoin with, regardless of whether it's actually economical. So it's not really about an economical kind of proposition. So it's not, it does make sense for us to hold on to all the hashing power. And you had, when you were giving your talk, you had an uh, analogy to gold mining? Uh, yeah, yeah. 
the, those who make the most money in, in gold in, in a gold rush are the ones who sell the shovels. So that's kind of a the principle be, behind that, right? You know, you don't want to actually be the one, you know, like putting all this money into like setting up a huge gold mine. You want to just be someone providing the tools. You know, that, that it's a lot more lucrative. <laughs> Sounds fun to me. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. That's kind of why we're doing it, actually. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was James Nichols, mathematician and programmer for Drillbit, a single-purpose computer for mining bitcoins and turning electricity into money. For as long as the bitcoin boom lasts. He's part of a team with Dan Stocks and Jesse Ricketson. You can find out more at www.drillbitsystem.com. I wonder who might gain from faster chips that can crack all known codes. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. A 3D printer for every home. This is the vision from Canadian startup Peachy Printer, which is crowdfunding the capital on Indiegogo and Kickstarter to be able to sell 3D printers that will retail for just $100. They reached their funding goal of $50,000 in just 24 hours and $160,000 in three days. The campaign is still running. The more they raise, the higher the quality of the first printers they sell, and the better support they'll be able to offer for their free software. The Peachy printer is a photolithographic printer. It uses a control beam of light to cure light-sensitive liquid resin into hard objects. There are a lot of crowdfunded 3D printers that have come out in the last year, aiming at making it cheaper for people to own and use a 3D printer. All of them to date have done so by redesigning their printers to make do with cheaper materials, being able to build smaller objects, and printing at lower resolution. And they've all been FDM, Fused Deposition Modelling, printers, which means they have a roll of ABS plastic feed, which is melted at the printhead into a drop, and they're deposited a drop at a time, building up an object layer by layer of plastic drops. Like an inkjet printer, using plastic, instead of ink. Peachy Printer's inventor, Ryland Grayston, took a different path and worked out a way to build a cheap, resin-based 3D printer using spare parts around his house. The original 3D printers 20 years ago were rapid prototypers that used ultraviolet lasers to solidify a liquid plastic resin to build objects up layer by layer. They cost a million dollars, which is part of why it took so long for the 3D printer revolution to kick off. The rest of the 20 years were waiting for the patents to run out. The resin used by these types of printers have been very expensive until 3D printer and enthusiast until 3D printer enthusiast and inventor Josh Ellis decided to buy the ingredients and develop his own resins. He started his company Maker Juice. The peachy printer relies on Maker Juice, a cheap quality resin along with a brilliant new design that allows Grayston to use low-powered lasers to keep the cost of the Peachy printer down to $100 Canadian. So here's how the Peachy printer works. Use the free open-source software Blender, available from blender.org, and run the Peachy print add-on software. You can design in any CAD computer-aided design program and import the file into Blender. Now here's the totally lateral thinking weird genius part. 
the Peachy Printer add-on software outputs a SoundWave file. The SoundWave file goes through the sound output port of your computer or through a USB to a sound output port supplied with the printer. The sound signal is then used to move the mirrors that control the ultraviolet laser that solidifies the resin. This printer is using an analog sound wave signal instead of an on-off digital signal to control its printing. This means the mirrors can move in very small increments, which give you a very high resolution for printed objects, down to 0.2 millimeters. This is because sound cards on computers are 16-bit, and this gives a maximum image resolution of 4 billion pixels when using sound to paint the object. So the analog sound wave signal is running up the wire from the sound port of your computer to the mirrors and lasers, which point at a bath of liquid resin and start solidifying the first layer of the object you're printing. That accounts for the X and Y axis of the horizontal part of the object. The Z axis that makes it 3D is up and down. In more expensive printers, motors will lift a platform to raise the resin up for the next layer to be solidified. Grayston has come up with a newer approach. He drips salt water from a tank on top of the printer, drop by drop, to lie under the resin. Because the resin floats on the salt water and rises by a precisely controlled amount. The drops briefly allow a current to pass as they drop through their tube to the bath. So the height of the salt water at the bottom of the bath rises, and it's controlled by counting the drops. One drop equals one electronic contact blip for the counter. The result is a fast, cheap and high quality 3D printed object. The size of what you print is determined by how big your bath of resin is. The bigger you build things, the further the laser has to travel to reach the resin, which will eventually give it space to become fuzzier, and so your object won't be at the highest resolution. Grayston wants to try printing a whole, full-sized, 5-metre canoe on a Peachy printer, and take it for a paddle. Peachy printers will also have an extra attachment on sale to make it into a 3D scanner, using your camera. You'll be able to scan and print objects in the same way you can now cheaply scan and print documents at home. They'll be selling kits you can self-assemble in an hour for $100, and printers that work straight out of the box for $400. Resin from MakerJuice costs about $60 a litre, which can make hundreds of pocket-sized prints. MakerJuice are working on new types of resins with different qualities, so you'll be able to choose to print objects with different properties, hard or flexible. At $100, this 3D printer starts to be the kind of thing you could run in the developing world, as long as you have power at a mail service providing the resin. Affordable 3D printing may allow people in developing countries to custom-build solutions to local problems. The Kickstarter campaign has three more weeks to run, and then the team will spend two months of development before they expect to start shipping peachy printers. I hope MakerJuice will be ready for the demand for resin, because at $100 per printer, I predict this will be the most popular Christmas gift for the creative person in your family. It's already on my wish list. And finally, this week's three-minute thesis from the UTS Science Faculty, where students have three minutes to explain their research to educated laymen with only one slide, for a chance at the Trans-Tasman competition in October. Here's James Hitchcock with his research on freshwater inflows to estuaries, rivers, carbon, and coastal food webs. 
so in Australia and many places around the world, we've drastically changed the natural flow patterns in rivers by putting in dams and extracting a lot of water. And we've really reduced the amount of water that flows from upstream uh, downstream to the estuary. The estuaries are places kind of like Sydney Harbour where rivers uh, meet the oceans. And so water management in Australia is really not focused too much on freshwater flows to estuaries. And there's always been this general idea that water that flows out to the sea is a waste of water. So the research gap that I kind of focused in on uh, in my PhD is looking at the role that rivers play in delivering organic carbon or organic matter from upstream downstream to the estuary. So carbon enters rivers from soil and leaf matter and vegetation. And if you've seen a river, particularly when it's flooding, you'll notice it's kind of brownish and that's the organic carbon that's dissolved into the water. So I've been heading to a couple of rivers on the south coast of New South Wales uh, once a month for the last uh, few years uh, in my little boat, uh, taking samples and doing experiments, trying to get to the bottom of this kind of. So the, the main, I guess the first kind of important thing is looking at the role of flows in carbon. And it's quite dynamic and it's not a static process. And there are key moments, particularly when it rains and when lots of carbon come down. Following that, we see big booms in microbes and bacteria. Um, so these are small little organisms, fractions of a millimetre, who use carbon uh, as a food source. So during these um, key moments, we have lots of carbon coming down, lots of rain. Uh, we get big booms in these microorganisms. And been obviously doing a lot of looking down microscopes and counting lots of little dots. Um, I guess the third and probably the most important aspect it's been looking at whether this energy, this carbon, is transferred up the food web to zooplankton. And zooplankton are these little crustaceans. They're only around one millimetre big, but they're really important because they're a good food source for juvenile fish. And so following, or following, in the weeks following these inflow events, and we see lots of carbon, we're also seeing big booms in some of these little copepods, these little codosterans, these, these zooplanktons. So to get back to that question, I guess, of whether water that flows out to the sea is a waste, um, Part of my research, I guess, really shows that it's actually really deeply connected to food web health and food web productivity in estuaries. And it's really important that we integrate estuaries into our natural resource management to try and mitigate some of the effects of using water upstream and the effects it has on our ecosystems downstream. Thanks. That was James Hitchcock with his three-minute thesis from the University of Technology, Sydney. You can find out more about the 3 Minute Thesis competition at www.3minutethesis.org. Next up, Bohemian Gravity. Is string theory right? Is it just fantasy? Caught in the landscape, out of touch with reality. Compactify, honest Diagrams. 
You can hear the rest of Tim Blaise, Bohemian Gravity, on his YouTube channel, Acapella Science. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email. So I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. And while you're at it, like our Facebook page and please leave a comment. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network and 2 H, and syndicated on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station in the US. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website www.diffusionradio.com That's www.diffusionradio.com I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.